The following podcast may contain adult language and conversations revolving around situations not suitable for immature audiences. Spoilers and general political incorrectness can often be expected, so listener discretion is advised. They must be destroyed on sight! Okay, welcome to They Must Be Destroyed on Sight, a movie podcast, and we're back for some more uh, film noir and crime and all that good stuff. Uh, I'm your host, Lee Russell. I'm joined by my two co-hosts this week. we got them both back. Daniel Harper, how are you doing, sir? I'm doing... Oh, I'm sorry. I was just uh, fiddling around with our, our Facebook page there, Lee. Um, oh, okay. Oh, I'm sorry. Did, did I mention that? I, I wasn't supposed to, I guess. You know. Yeah, it's terrible. No one needs to know mm-hmm. about that shit. Uh, but but how, how are you doing, sir? I'm doing just fine. Thank you. Awesome. And we have Paul Romali back. How are you doing, sir? I don't have any shameless plugs. That's all right. Bye. I'm fine. I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Uh, yeah, we're going to be talking about uh, Kiss of Death from 1947 here in a little while, uh, although we do have a little bit of sort of house cleaning to do here first. I just want to make a brief... You're, you're sick-canning me from the podcast, right? Like, that's what's happening? You brought me on. This is an intervention. <laughs> Daniel, you have to stop. You have to cut the beard. It's, it's yeah. over. No, I, I want to make a brief mention. Um, a podcast uh, recommendation that I've been listening to for a little while now. They're, they're only a couple episodes in. It's called the Hail Ming Power Hour. They're on legionpodcast.com, which is a sort of um, <coughs> a network of podcasts. There's actually some pretty good ones on there that I listen to all the time. But I just started listening to this one, and it's really fun. It focuses on movies in the 80s. So far, they've done, of course, Flash Gordon from the 1980s with the awesome Queen soundtrack. Um, they've done Big Trouble in Little China, China The Golden Child, mm-hmm. uh, Clash of the Titans in their mm-hmm. latest episode. Um, so they're covering all kinds of cool sort of, and also The Last Starfighter. They're they're cool. They're they're covering all like the really coolest fucking 80s films. That they're from the 80s, so I might have actually watched them. Yeah, uh, definitely worth listening to. Uh, they just started out, but they have great production, and it's a lot of fun. So yeah, check them out. Definitely, we're, by the time you hear this, they'll be linked in our Podbean uh, page as well. So uh, the Hail Ming Power Hour. Want to mention how much I appreciate the interaction we've gotten so far on our um, our Facebook page. Uh, it's it's been really good. Uh, we had some really good suggestions for films. Uh, we had uh, guys like Cameron Sullivan um, offering some suggestions for our sex comedy series that we're going to do later this spring. Dinosaur Island is definitely one I I want to go after. Uh, Stuart Balk for Midnight New Movie Cowboys wanted to see us do maybe like Gas Pump Girls or the Hot Hard Body series. So I think we almost have our sex comedy series uh, continuation set in stone at this point. And Daniel made a a uh, good suggestion uh, earlier tonight as well. So uh, we'll we'll have like one serious sex comedy, and then we'll have like uh, a bunch of really silly ones as well to uh, throw in there. So it'll be fun. Shout um, out to Robert Hook. Mm-hmm, Robert Hook, exactly. He joined in as well. And uh, yeah, I'm just I'm I'm enjoying the uh, interaction that uh, our members have been giving us. It's great. If you have films you want us to see us do, please feel free to comment on the board. That's what it's for. So. 
Or just movie conversation in general. Like, yes. yeah, I'd love to. I'd love to see people just sit and chat about movies they like. You know, because that's that's why we do this. Really, is just to. I mean, I mean, I'm glad that people enjoy it. But for me, this is just like getting to hang out with two guys I like to talk about movies. You know, so you know. Yeah. So anyway, we can move from there, and we can uh, immediately transition into what we've been watching lately. Um, I'll start with you, Paul. If there's anything you've watched in the last little while you want to mention. I actually watched a really good werewolf movie that's new, which was surprising because it's new, and I'm bitter. Uh, it's called Blood Moon, and okay. it was really good. The CGI is minimum, and they finally, like, it's nice to see someone actually use shadow and fog and mist and light to, you know, make the character, the, the werewolf, a little bit more creepy and, you know, so it's not so blatant. Uh, and it's set in more of a the colonial western time. Okay. So, I mean, it definitely has a really cool thing to it, and it uses the Native American Yindaleoshi kind of skinwalker All right. vibe to it, so it's really cool. Uh, it was actually really fun to watch, and I watched Django. Did you? Ooh. Oh, wait, which, which Django? Which Django? The original? The original Django. From 68, or mm-hmm. 66 or 68? I can't remember which date it is, but... Uh, awesome. Somewhere in there. Yeah, unfortunately, I rented a bunch of things. I rented uh, Django Strikes Again... And Seven Samurai, and yeah, I I just rent movies and take them back. Yeah, I don't watch anything. So, <laughs> but I actually still, managed to watch. Still support in your local store. That's exactly, good. Exactly. That's a good boy. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. way to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, Daniel, I know you have quite a few things to mention, so I'll let you go right into it. Sure. Uh, one thing I watched, I'll just mention this: uh, Bob and Carol and Ted Nallis. 1969, that's the uh, quote-unquote serious six comedy. We're definitely going to cover it on this show because I insisted, and Lee uh, was scared of me, so uh, we're going to uh, definitely do that. I won't talk about it now, but it's brilliant. I, I saw uh, With Nail and I uh, for oh, the yeah. time, uh, from 87. Uh, this is uh, Paul McGann and Richard E. Grant uh, as a bunch of, a couple of uh, drug-addicted inebriates who basically <laughs> spend an entire film boozing. Uh, it's a dark comedy, uh, it's an independent movie. Um, about a third of the film in the middle is uh, built on the threat of gay rape, which is uh, okay. always uh, always a good time, really. Um, this is uh, simultaneously a, a really brilliant film and really, really problematic, as you can tell. It was definitely worth a watch, but it's it's very much like... you, you Just be aware of what you're getting into, but um, yeah. Um, that was my uh, first chance to, to get to see it, and uh, I really enjoyed it. I love that definitely. film. Yeah, definitely. It's fucking hilarious. It, it it is hilarious. I mean, I, I don't want to I don't want to undersell it. I'm just saying, like that was that was definitely an experience, like a film experience. So. It, it it definitely it definitely balances hilariousness with cringe. Yeah, it's got a, it's got a lot of cringe, and uh, some of it was uh, I mean, some of it is like even in '87, you know, like they're they're doing it intentionally, and some of it is like, yeah, this hasn't aged well. <laughs> um, and I think it's kind of an equal measure, but it, it is it is really really wonderful, and it's really focused on character. It's it's got a lot going on. It's it's worth yeah. watching. I watched uh, the boy with green hair. This is actually I mentioned this because yeah, it was directed. Yeah. It was directed by the same guy that did the 1951 M, mm-hmm. um, and I had uh, kind of tracked that down because I had uh, kind of seen people talk about it. It's uh, got a young Dean Stockwell, and by young Dean Stockwell, I mean he's the boy. The <laughs> little boy in the in the film. Yeah, you know, talking is... Dunwich, you're talking really young. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this is a pretty 
fun little uh, goofy movie uh, about a boy who wakes up one morning and, and has green hair. I mean, like in like very very overtly green. It's a message picture. It's it's kind of uh, very much in that kind of old studio system. It's uh, it's really about kind of the, the plight of war orphans, which was a kind of a big deal in '48. It's also kind of easy to read as kind of a metaphor for for being gay or being trans or being you know kind of an outsider in general. Edward James almost actually lists this as one of his favorite movies, like you know of all time. It's it's worth tracking down. Um, it's not something I would say you know like is is probably like in the wheelhouse of most of the people. Listening to this show, but uh, I enjoyed it. My my wife Shanna sat and watched it with me, and we both kind of like got a lot out of it. It was it was it was worth the kind of eighty five minutes or whatever. So um, check that out. It does have a distinctly kind of uh, communist witch hunt attitude, you know, mm-hmm. atmosphere to it as well. At times, um, I just want to watch it because you mentioned Dean Stockwell, was not it? Mm-hmm. I, I love Dean Stockwell. <laughs> yeah, I mean he he's literally like ten years old or something. I mean this is this is a very young Dean Stockwell. Yeah. So, uh, but you know he's uh he's I mean he's quite good. I mean you can you, I mean he is he's a child actor, but you don't get like the oh well obviously he's kind of one of those he was cute and didn't have any talent. I mean this will be this, uh we'll we'll be talking a lot about him when we do Blue Velvet in a couple of weeks. <laughs> I I know Dean Stockwell from Quantum Leap. I grew up on Quantum mm-hmm. Leap, so yeah, I'm always. I'm always down with that. So, uh, let's see. What else did I watch? I'm trying to do these uh, in kind of a fun order. Oh, I watched a movie from the 80s. I watched National Lampoons: The Joy of Sex. Uh, hmm. This is a uh, the version I found was really very much a uh, VHS rip. You know, somebody had ripped it from a pan and scan VHS. It was in shitty quality. I think it's on YouTube actually, and um, it's a uh, Pretty forgettable. I mean, it's not terrible. It's just really forgettable, kind of 86 comedy without any real nudity in it. Um, The reason I kind of tracked it down was because it uh, was directed by Martha Coolidge, who uh, directed uh, one of my favorite movies, Real Genius. Oh, really? Okay. And uh, and it stars Michelle Mayrink, who is uh, Jordan in Real Genius and who is kind of had a career for... She's uh, Gilbert's girlfriend in Revenge of the Nerds, if you remember. Oh, okay. She's quite good. Um, this is this really doesn't take advantage of her talents at all. I mean, her great role is in Real Genius. But that was kind of the reason I tracked it down. I'm like, oh, I, I should actually watch this. This this looks uh, kind of cute. Um, it's it's worth a... Like, if you can get it, it's worth kind of sitting down and watching it, but it's not <laughs> It's not very good. Actually, this spring we should probably do Real Genius because I know you wanted to do it last time with the, for the sex comedy series. So yeah, I, it's not even really a sex comedy, so I wouldn't even do it as part of that series. But I would oh, okay. absolutely. Um, I mean, Real Genius is a movie we should definitely discuss at some point. Uh, let's see. I watched uh, The Skull. This is an anime. <clears throat> Peter Cushing. Peter Cushing. Yeah, and uh, really the reason to watch this is for Peter Cushing. Yeah, that that perform that is maybe my top in my top three performances from him. The physical performance he does in that film is fucking amazing. Yeah, didn't, um, didn't City of the Dead cover it? City of the Dead covered it. Yeah, yeah. Um, a couple months ago actually. I'm I'm a little bit behind on them. I uh, didn't get to watch the Psychopath yet, um, which is their most recent episode, and I but I, I should get that watched for next week. But uh. I did sit down and watch The Skull. I really enjoyed The Skull, and I think we should cover it on the show at some point. Yeah, we definitely will. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a small film. It's a smaller... I mean, it it's is. not like it's... You know, I kind of I kind of expect, like, oh, yeah, like, it's Peter Cushing, and it's, you know, kind of... I expect it kind of big, you know, kind of thematically, and it, and it does have that, but it's it's really just kind of this uh, creepy 85-minute uh, little mini-masterpiece, but it, that almost yeah. oversells it, you know. And it's got Christopher Lee playing the good guy. 
Christopher Lee. It's got uh, Peter Cushing and uh, some other people. So uh-huh. um, fun. Uh, oh, one more. I watched. Uh, I've been uh, following this uh, actress from the '40s. Uh, I've been kind of watching uh, some of her movies. Linda Darnell, who was kind of one of, one of those forgotten uh, kind of screen sirens from the '40s. Um, and I watched a movie called Fallen Angel. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a noir picture. Um, it is uh, it is from 1947 or 48, something like that. Uh, this is a movie uh, kind of about a guy who tries to marry this woman to get her money, and then she ends up killed, and then he gets threatened with the... He, he, like, he's kind of fingered for the murder, and it's kind of about the murder investigation. It's... Uh, a really convoluted... I don't want to say convoluted, but it's got a... It's, it's much more... Uh, it's much less focused than I've made it sound. It's really got this kind of interesting kind of character study in a way. It's a fun movie. This one is definitely worth watching. Um, what's funny is I was I was watching this, and uh, I had told my wife uh, that I was uh, kind of following this actress, Linda Darnell, and uh, yeah, that, I, that I was kind of like, oh, I'm just like... I just found a bunch of movies she was in, and I'm watching them because I... I I kind of fell in love with her, you know. She didn't know who the actress was. She hadn't seen her before. And then the second she saw her, she went, oh, that one. Yeah, I get it. You know why? Because she's, like, fucking sassy as shit. She doesn't take any shit from anybody. <laughs> no, like, yeah, no, that, that's it, you know. Uh, she knows I have a type. It's fine, you know. So, um, uh, Fallen Angel, it's it's worth uh, it's worth checking out. It's not a great film, but it's a nice little uh, noir picture. And I'm, uh, I'm watching a bunch of noir in addition to the noir we're watching for the show. So, nice. um, Fun times. Awesome. Before you go on, I actually forgot to tell you, I watched a, um, a serial killer movie that you'd like. I think you'd like it anyway. It's called 213. Okay. And I thought it was going to be Dahmer, but it's not. It's more of a crazy kind of a killer that where you know uses masks and things like that, but it's pretty interesting. Uh, so check it out, 213. And then I watched two of the films that hopefully we'll do later of the four was Tombs of the Blind Death, Dead and Return of the Evil Dead. And so I did yeah, actually transfer to uh, those two. We're, we're definitely going to do the Blind Dead series at some point. Mm-hmm. And sorry to interrupt. But no, sorry. That That's all right. Uh, you've been gone for a couple weeks, so uh, whenever you feel like interjecting, just do it. <laughs> how, dare, how dare you talk on this podcast? That's yeah, my job. You son it took, of a bitch. It took me like six weeks to get four films watched. So there you right. go. Major accomplishment. Yeah. Uh, unemployment has its perks. <laughs> <laughs> the only thing I really watched was this film, and actually it was just like yesterday I watched it. It was I was just scrolling through Netflix, and it was like featured on Netflix. It's called Indigenous from 2014. Um, it's about a bunch of these incredibly beautiful young Americans going to Panama and uh, taking a little trip into what is called the uh, sort of uh, Darien Gap, I believe it's called. It's it's the only break in the sort of uh, Pan American Highway or whatever. The, the Straits of Gibraltar? No, not Gibraltar. The the Panama Canal. Oh, the Panama Canal. I yeah. don't know what that's called. Okay, it's, I was like, it's it's the only jungle break. It's the only break in it. It's this like uh, uh-huh. fifty kilometer jungle patch of like jungle and swamp. Oh, and okay. Shit. And basically, what it does is it sets them up to be hunted by like uh, chupacabra, basically. Uh, yeah, I like it's it. not. It. It's not a great film as far there, as acting. There's no breasts in it. No, sadly, there's oh, not. Uh, it's it's a beautifully shot film. It looks really great. There's mm-hmm. like sort of side boob and stuff in it for the most mm-hmm. part. Side boob, yeah. yeah. Side boob's all right. Uh, but the actors are 
they're all right, but they're all one note. The writing is terrible for them. And the movie, if you remember The Descent, this is essentially The Descent, but instead of in a cave for most of the movie, it's out in the jungle, under the canopy of the jungle instead. Mm-hmm. Uh, because the uh, uh, quote-unquote chupacabra looks basically just like the fucking monsters from The Descent for the most part. It wasn't bad, though. I mean, it was an agreeable waste of like an hour and a half. But a Fun monster uh, flick, right? Yeah, it wasn't too bad. Good gore, good effects. Like I said, the acting wasn't that great. Here's the question. Does it pair with Aguirre, The Wrath of God? No, not, a, not even fucking close. <laughs> Did anybody get crushed by a boat? No. No? It, it, not even no fucking crewman close. died? Uh, but there, there were some interesting characters. Like, there's this, like, like the, the American kids, they meet up with some locals there at the bar where they're just drinking and hanging out on the beach and shit. And the, the locals are like, don't go into that fucking patch of woods or the, or the jungle or whatever because mm-hmm. people get go missing there. And they try to implement kind of... they. It's not a found footage film, but they implement the sort of aspects of found footage in a way because they show, like, uh, a found footage thing of other guys who were in that place uh, on the Internet who all of a sudden went missing and died or whatever. So there's a little bit of that on there. And, mm-hmm. it's, and as far as the found footage stuff goes, it's not as annoying as a lot of found footage films where you see fucking uh, a, a fucking battery bar uh, going across the screen or whatever, because if you watch a fucking video that you recorded on a fucking video camera, you don't see the fucking battery bar bar on the fucking playback of the video. Right, I mean, right, right. So I mean, you know, you know how many how many horror movies would have never happened if entitled white people would just learn how to take a take a hint, like don't go in there. Okay, cool. That's that's sort of the message of the film too. It's like they they make the point when they start off the film. It's like. Every culture has uh, stories about monsters living off in the distance or whatever, taking people away, and uh, a lot of people believe they're true, and then they go into it, and it's like, so this is one barren piece of jungle that nobody's really lives in, mm-hmm. and and it's like people have disappeared there, so they, they use that to sort of build up the sort of mythology underneath the film, and it works. Uh, it it could have been a way better film, but for what they did, it's actually not too bad. So uh, I, w- I would recommend a watch with you know, with caution. I mean, don't don't go expecting anything great. I mean, if you're you know having a few beers and you have nothing else to watch on Netflix, fucking go after it. Yeah, awesome. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, we can jump right into our main event here for tonight, and it's going to be Kiss of Death from 1947. <laughs> Mr. North and South American, all the ships at sea, let's go to press. This is Walter Winchell broadcasting from Hollywood. I just came from a projection room at 20th Century Fox Studios where I saw a picture of my town, New York, and my time now. Ladies and gentlemen, the title of this moving picture is Kiss of Death. In underworld lingo, Kiss of Death can be many things, none of them good. A pat on the shoulder from a pal that turns into a bullet in the back, or a kiss from a woman's warm lips that sends the victim to the morgue. Like Boomerang and the house on 92nd Street, this one has authenticity stamped all over it. It is red meat. It is factual. It's a close-up of the tenderloin in action. Its tempo is terrific. And its story is that of a squealer. In underworld code, a squealer is marked for death. One man sneered at the code, squealed, and didn't die. That's what makes Kiss of Death such a gripping and exciting moving picture. Kids like to have fun. We'll all have some fun together. You and me 
your wife and your kids. Touch my family and you'll hear singing like you never heard before. Go on, beat it. Mick, he's a three-time loser now. All we've got to do is catch him with a gun on him and we can send him up for life. And suppose he don't make a mistake. He didn't the last time. You made the mistake. Sooner or later, he'll trip himself up. They all do. You've got to trust me. I'm through trusting you, the police, or anybody but me. There's only one way to get you, though. And that's my way. If you like action as I do with entertainment, you'll find it here. This one was written with a machine gun. Uh, directed by Henry Hathaway. Most people probably know him from The Sons of Katie Elder, True Grit, and two Rommel films, The Desert Fox and Raid on Rommel. So he's he's a fairly well-known director from back in the day. Uh, written by Ben Haish, Charles Lederer, who is probably really w mostly known for Mutiny on the Bounty and Ocean's Eleven and The Thing from Another World. Based on a story from uh, Elazar Lisp Lispke. And uh, Philip Dunn also added some extra to the uh, screenplay. It is starring Victor Mature as Nick Bianco, Brian Donlevy as assistant DA Louis D'Angelo, Colleen Gray as Nettie, Richard Widmark in his debut role as Tommy Udo, who is a well-known character actor, Death of a Gunfighter, uh, To Devil a Daughter, Warlock, How the West Was Won, Judgment at Nuremberg, or some of his uh, major films. Uh, Taylor Holmes as Earl Hauser, Edward Smith as Warden, Carl Malden, another famous actor, probably, most people probably know him from uh, Patton, uh, as Sergeant William Cullen, and Anthony Ross as Big Ed Williams. And I'll throw it over to you, Daniel, for the synopsis. Kiss of Death, 1947. In the opening sequence, ex-con Nick Bianco, Victor Mature, unable to provide for his family doing honest work due to prior convictions, is part of a four-man team robbing a jewelry store on Christmas Eve. He is shot in the leg and captured while his compatriots go free. An apparent believer that snitches get stitches, and believing that his wife and children will be taken care of by his lawyer, Taylor Holmes, while he's in prison, Bianco refuses to reveal the identities of his compatriots, even upon pressure from the assistant DA, Louis D'Angelo, Brian Dunleavy. After three years rotting away in the joint, Bianco learns that his wife has committed suicide, apparently after having been brutally raped by psychopathic thug Tommy Udo, Richard Woodmark, in his very first role, and that his two young daughters are living in an orphanage. Bianco then decides that it's in his and his family's best interest to turn state's evidence and make a deal with the DA. After a bit of fairly complicated legal maneuvering, Bianco squeals on his fellow thieves, including Udo, is released, and testifies at Udo's trial. Udo is not convicted, however, and the final third of the film is devoted to Bianco's increasingly desperate attempts to ensure that the safety of his family from the giggling killer. Yeah, although I, I will make one correction there. It's it's not Udo who's implied to have uh, raped uh, his, his wife. It's oh, Rizzo. is it Rizzo? Oh, yeah. okay. Although, that, although uh, I'll get more to that as well, because that's kind of something that was sort of uh, stricken from the film to a certain degree, yeah. but uh, no, I, it, it was it was stricken from the film. I yeah. uh, I just uh, missed the I missed the character, but yeah. But no, no, that, so, that's that's my excellent. apologies. No, that's I just, excellent. Every time I heard it, I just think of the Jerky Boys. 
Uh, all right, so since Paul's back, uh, I'm going to go to you first, sir. Uh, ask your sort of general opinion of this film. Well, why don't you just throw me on the fire, then? Yeah, oh. well, that's what we're doing here, bitch. Come on. Uh, huh? Overall, it's a pretty good crime drama, cop drama. As a father, I know exactly what he's feeling, you know what I mean? But it's kind of interesting to see him trying to cling on to a life that doesn't actually care about him. You know what I mean? That, that, kind, of, that kind of aspect and the stuff, the sacrifices that he makes. For for a man in such of a position that should know not to trust anybody, he trusts the wrong people all the time, it seems, half the time, and, and gets him in the, the trouble that he's in. Um, overall, it's a, it's a fun film. It seems like, you know, the self-sacrificing man is definitely played in there. Um, I've actually... My Nettie's, Nettie's really hot. <laughs> and uh, Yeah, really hot. And um, it's just actually... was actually kind of fun to see uh, an ending... Was actually more positive than negative, so overall, I mean, it doesn't do a lot, but when it does do things, it doesn't really hold back and shows you how bad some of these people could be, if you know what I mean. So, I mean, mm-hmm. it's a pretty, pretty good, uh, pretty good movie overall. That's my really quick thought of it. All right, uh, Daniel. Uh, I would agree with uh, pretty much everything Paul said. I, I think that it's. Uh, Interesting in that it's a, a film that uh, I, I think we're used to with these noir films, you know, a, a man who stands alone, you know, sort of, uh, you know, somebody who's uh, standing against kind of institutional pressures or against the bad guys and, you know, these kind of morally compromised characters and this sort of thing. And uh, you you really don't get this here. I mean, you know, uh, our lead, Bianco, is a, he's a small man. I, I kind of talked about this a little bit last week uh, with... Uh, Gene Hackman's characters in, in both of the the films we talked about last week, but uh, you know he's uh, he's kind of subject to the same institutional forces of the rest of of uh, society. Uh, he's a man who is uh, kind of forced into these circumstances by economics. He just doesn't have the ability to earn for his family, so he has to steal, and then he ends up in prison. And it's almost it's almost like he's he's not a he's not a particularly good man. He's not a particularly bad man. He's just kind of a guy who yeah. um, is playing the hand he's dealt. I wouldn't even say he makes bad decisions. I think he makes relatively good decisions. He's just kind of, this is just what the system does. Uh, I think it's, uh, the uh, film is unusual. If you don't mind me saying, he doesn't always make the best decision, but he is an honorable guy. Like, he does have a code of honor he runs by, and he finds himself in the situation where he had a past criminal record, and the fact that he had a past criminal record discriminates uh, against him as far as trying to get a new job. And that throws them back into crime. So they, they do make a point of that in the film. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, that's even in the uh, kind of intro sequence. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, you know, that, like, I would, uh, you know, I I actually would like to dig into whether or not he's an honorable man. I, I, don't, I don't think he's particularly honorable, um, honestly. I, I mean, again, I don't think he's a terrible person. I think that he makes the decisions he does. Like, uh, if you're saying, like, he didn't squeal on his on his buddies, you know, I think that, you know, that's more of a fear. Well, okay, but... maybe maybe honorable is the wrong word. Maybe he's a principled man. I think he's he thinks he's going to be taken care of. He thinks his wife and kids are going to be taken care mm-hmm. of. And he would rather just let that happen than to get stabbed by somebody for for mm-hmm. squealing. But I don't think he feels any particular moral compunction about squealing. I think he's just like I mean that's the point. It's the kiss of death to to squeal in your on your yeah. patriots. But you know I I don't I don't get the sense that like you don't get or I don't I mean just kind of watching this I don't get the sense that he has this big moral compunction. 
I think it's more like, well, you know, we're not just we're just not supposed to do that. Um, Band of brothers, where we you don't do that, that kind of thing. It just right. you just don't do that, and if you do, you well, get killed. They always had like a lame like Rob feel to me, though. At the same time, you know, stealing because I have oh, to, that kind of thing. Oh, oh God, I mean, there, there's definitely that, and and I think that you know where I land is it's it's interesting. I mean, a um, this film uh, is notably shot in a lot of the locations that it uh, yeah. is set in. Um, which is which is you know it kind of has that kind of photorealism kind of aspect to it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that it's it's also unique, or, or I won't say unique, but it's unusual in that it focuses very much on kind of the process of justice and the way that the the kind of justice system works, which is uh, unusual for this kind of film. You know, we're used to kind of seeing like, oh, the cops are after me, but we don't like get the sense of like, oh, and then I've got a parole violation and, and that sort of thing. I mean, the mm-hmm. the uh, the kind of focus on the legal system is uh, at least at least for kind of the middle third or so is uh, unusual for a film of this structure. That's actually for me. I mean, uh, I think we're going to talk about Udo and um, Richard Woodmark here, and that's kind of what everybody focuses on in this film because Richard Woodmark is brilliant in this film. I'm not trying to say he's not, but uh, I actually I actually thought that probably the most compelling thing is the the kind of the, the focus on the legalism and the focus on the way this guy has just been fucked over by everybody that he thinks the the DA is kind of fucking him over, his fellow criminals are fucking him over, his own lawyers fucking him over, mm-hmm. and he sometimes seems aware of it and sometimes doesn't. And uh, I think that that's a really, you know, I, I hate to say realistic, but that's a very like straightforward way of viewing it. I mean. Most of us in this situation, if we, if you and I were in this situation, you're kind of like, well, my lawyer says he's going to take care of my wife, and then when he doesn't, you're like, well, what do I do now? It's yeah. Like to trust this DA and that sort of thing. I mean, he's he's a victim of larger forces. Mm-hmm. You know? He's just grabbing at options that are up, and they're not the best options, but he's grabbing at the only ones he can get. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And and I think that that's for me what I, what I kind of end with in the film is that uh, ultimately, how else was this going to go? You know, except except the way it did, and he's just kind of he's just a cog in this big machine. He luckily ends the film in a in a positive place, but that certainly could have ended in tragedy very very easily. You know, so uh, yeah, I find this a lot different from a lot of noirs, especially even of the period, um, because like you said, it does focus more on sort of like the process, like the legal process, as far as uh, what people like uh, the main character would go through. It's not a film filled with action. It's not filled with a lot of shooting and stuff. For the first two-thirds of the film, what (laughs) interaction you do do see between Victor Mature and Richard Widmark, they're just kind of hanging out together. Like, Richard Widmark's character doesn't like him at all, but they're, you know, they're they're at least cordial with each other. And it's only, like, the last third of the film that even any tension or anything really starts to build in the film. For the most part... I mean, there are only, like, five or six gunshots in the entire movie, Mm -hmm. and that's all during the first, like, ten minutes and the last ten minutes. Yeah, Yeah. but I I did really like that. I liked the way this one went. Like, it just... It was was focusing more on Victor Mature's character and the stuff he was going through. And it it took more of a realistic look at what might have... would happen in this situation. Like, you know, it's, it's not a film strictly about Tommy Udo going after him for the entire film. That That is sort of a trope that would happen in a lot of film noirs. Uh, what happens in the last third of this film is almost like the plot for, like, say, Cape Fear, right? Yeah. Where, where it's just Max Cady going after the lawyer for the entire film. 
and and there's plenty of other films that are, are like this as well, but this one takes a much more realistic approach, and I really appreciated that. I, I really enjoyed this. Like you were mentioning, it was basically shot on location for the most part, so everything here was shot in New York. They even, they even tell you at the beginning of the film, all of this was shot in New York and on location. Uh, uh, like, they, they, they do... The, the, the train ride is actually shot on the train to Osening. Bronx County Jail was featured in this. Uh, the Criminal Courts Building, the Hotel uh, Maguri, a couple nightclubs actually in New York City were shown, and also Sing Sing, the famous prison, Sing Sing. They have that great shot where you see, like, the 300 cell blocks going all the way back. Like, none of that's a matte painting. That's just the shot, and yeah. it's got a really great depth to it. It looks really good. As a consequence of the fact that they filmed all on location, this is one of the earliest films where you see a real working toilet on film. <laughs> Which nice. was a big, big controversy before, you know, Psycho uh, had a flushing toilet on film, you know? So I, I really like that. That's awesome. I do think we should get right into uh, Widmark here because this is a pretty exceptional performance. This was, his, this was his first role, and this was a role that got him an Academy Award nomination, and I believe his only Academy Award nomination, actually. He just plays this really great, notable psychopath, like one of the first really notable psychopaths on, on screen. He was influenced by the Joker from the Batman comics. Uh, Rich Widmark apparently was a fan of the Batman comics. He saw the Joker. The Joker character in the original Batman comics was actually like a straight-up psychopath before they hit the 1950s and they, they had the comics code come in and turn everything comical and jokey and shit. So that's sort of where he drew some of his performance from, and he's got this big smile on his face most of the time, and he's, he's cackling, he's like, <laughs> you squirt, you squirt. Yeah, um, I, I love it. I absolutely love it. But uh, interesting enough, that performance kind of went in cycles with the Batman uh, continuity. It influenced Gershwin, who did the Riddler in the 1960s Batman. He he took a lot of his performance from that. Also, the Batman series, the animated series from the early nineties, mm -hmm. uh, the the Joker in that series uh, took a lot from that performance. And actually, that uh, movie they did, The Mask of the Phantasm, where they retcon the Joker's uh, origins, you see him as a basically a mob enforcer who is definitely Tommy Udo. Like he, okay. he is just totally Tommy Udo, and also. Jack Nicholson's performance in the Batman film from 89, I think that's totally Tommy Udo in that performance. Like, it's it's basically Tommy Udo if he got to be 50, right? <laughs> so, I, I really like it. I'll just throw it out to you guys uh, what you think of uh, Widmark's performance in this. Well, I like it. I really do. I like his, uh, I like the fact that he's always smiling and giggling and, and joking and you know, you're my pal, aren't you? Yeah, you're my. You know, like you know, I'm, and that means I'm gonna kill you. You know what I mean? I like, I like that. I I do like the fact that I've had friends like that, where like they're the real bad guys, and you really shouldn't be friends with them, but you like them, and they're you know what I mean, but they're really crazy and weird. But you know, if you piss them off, they can fuck you up. You know that kind of thing. So mm. that was pretty interesting to see him see him play that character. I did not know about the Batman link. Yeah, and and I'm I'm not sure if it's ever been really confirm that, like, the Mask of the Phantasm, where they do the Joker's origin and stuff, if that is a continuation of that, like, that's a real link, but 
I mean, I watch it and I go, come on, that has to be where they got Tommy, like, where they got that from. Like, Tommy Udo is a direct influence back on their Joker origin in that series. And, and, and I mean, it just makes sense, and it, and it works really well. The guy, he just does a great psychopath. Like, he's mm-hmm. just fucking nuts. <laughs> Double cross and squealers, buddy. What's the matter? I don't know nothing. Bloody yellow squid beat it, huh? Took a pot huh? Where did he, where'd he go? I'm asking you, where's that squealing son of yours? Huh. <laughs> you think a squealer can get away from me? Huh? <laughs> you know what I do to squealers? I let them have it in the belly so they can roll around for a long time thinking it over. You're worse than him. You're telling me he's coming back. <laughs> no, no, I'm taking Let me go. No. On a train, huh? Hey, where you going? No, no. This is why no one is swimming. Not outside. I can't move. I think. And well, it's it's clearly a star-making performance. I mean, it's, yeah. it really is one of those, uh, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to talk about other stuff before we dug into this is just because, like, it's so easy when you look at this film to kind of go, yeah, Victor Maturi's doing his thing, you know, there's a pretty girl, there's some maneuvering, there's some other stuff, and then, like, oh, my God, Richard Woodmark is fucking amazing in this film. Mm-hmm. To the degree that I think one of the things is that Woodmark's performance seems really modernistic, you know? Um, this is this is pre-kind of Stanislavski method. This is pre, uh, you know, the, the kind of more naturalistic acting style. But at the same time, you know, you could, you could take that performance and, like, plop it into something modern, and it and it feels very contemporary, even... even mm-hmm. Uh, you know, 60 years later, I think that it's uh, tempting to al- to, to almost uh, overstate it. You know, in terms of its, uh, or, or uh, I guess it's difficult to overstate how influential that must have been. I mean, because you know, Batman influences Widmark, and then Widmark does his performance, and that influences all the future versions of Batman. Sure, mm-hmm. but also. You know how many giggling psychopaths have we seen in movies? How many kind of like detached psychopathic characters have we seen? How many uh, giggling killers and that sort of thing? And uh, you know, it, it seems like to some degree a, a whole lot of that can be traced back to this moment right here. Of course, it feels modern. It's been aped so many times, you know, by by other actors. It's also even even from the distance of seventy years or sixty years, it's um it's incredibly watchable. A lot of these old movies feel like homework. You know what I mean? Like, and I, and I don't mean that in a negative way. It's just like you're so distant from them at this point that kind of watching them is like, oh, yeah, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to watch it, but it feels like, oh, I've got to take notes. I've got to kind of, like, uh, Woodmark's performance feels very fresh and new and feels very entertaining and fun 
aside from any other conversation we have about the meaning of the film or whatever, it, it feels very much like, oh yeah, I'm just sitting here and I'm just watching this great performance. You know? Yeah, so, well, you go into this and it's like, okay, it's a movie from 1947. You don't expect to see performance like that. Like, no. It just yeah. totally takes you off guard. And I'll throw this out to you both. Do you feel like, and, I, and honestly, I'll just say right now, I personally don't feel this way, but do either of you feel like he even like sort of skirts uh, at chewing the scenery at all? Because I, I don't feel like he does. Like I, it, it feels very authentic to me. Even when he's just giggling uncontrollably, it feels like this guy is like a straight-up psychopath that I believe. Mm-hmm. Basically, he's a hired insane man, and he does a great job at it. There's another one that... I was just thinking about, too, that if you break it down, basically, he's just a hired psychopath. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's... And then, like you said, we've seen it so many times in films now, but if this is, like, one of the first actual things, then this is something that has to be held high because of that, because it's influenced so much other things later. Yeah, I I mean, I'll say it's it's a mannered performance. If you're asking me, does it seem like he's chewing the scenery? No, I don't think he's outsized for the movie he's in. I don't think he's uh, drawing over due attention to himself. Um, I think it does feel like a performance in the sense of, you know, it doesn't feel... Uh, I mean, again, it's pre-method. It's pre... Uh, you know that that sort of idea of what kind of how we generate characters, and so any performance from that era is going to feel slightly detached from a from a kind of modern perspective. Uh, but at the same time, it it feels uh, very much a part of the world he's in. You know, it doesn't yeah. feel like uh, you know. <laughs> I mean, it would be easy with it with a performance like this to. Uh, Basically, I'm acting in my own little movie, and then you know, there's this other movie that's kind of happening around me, sort of thing. And that that isn't the way this feels. It does feel integrated into this larger world. Um, and I think that that's. I, I mean, I don't even think that's Widmark. As I mean, I, I as much as I admire Widmark, I think that's the film itself supports the performance. I think that there's yeah. enough other stuff going on that, you know, then when you cut to Widmark, kind of kind of going off and doing his giggling killer thing, it feels like yes, this is just this is the threat that we're putting in front of uh, Victor Mature as opposed to uh, feeling like it's it's just uh, kind of isolated or, you know, in, inauthentic. I mean, it does feel authentic to the world, you know. It's interesting because it, it was a really influential performance. When people, like, I guess I think the producers it was, who started, like, seeing this when it would start playing, it was like, okay, we got to promote like it was supposed to be a Victor Mature vehicle. It was supposed to be uh, about him for the most part because he was a big time star. He was you know a growing star. He he was the sort of you know ruggedly handsome kind of leading man of the day. But people like people were seeing his performances like we need to promote the fuck out of Richard Widmark because this this movie is about Tommy Udo more than anything else. We need to we need to see him in this. So that that was what became sort of the focus of the promotion for this. And it was so influential. A famous New York mobster named Joe Gallo, who was known as Crazy Joe, he basically patterned himself after Richard Widmark's character. He started dressing like him, started acting like him. Uh, he eventually died in 1972, and he was like wiped out by rival gangsters. But he he actually like basically patterned himself after Richard Widmark's performance, and and gained gained some of his reputation from like acting like this guy. <laughs> so. It is kind of one of those things uh, we were we were talking. Uh, I mean, going back to the long goodbye, you know, we were yeah. kind of talking about how uh, so many of the the real life criminals and cops act like you know movies. You yeah. Know, act like, you know, and, and so we do uh, kind of see that uh, it does happen over and over again. And 
you know, a, a performance like this, I can understand how, like, if you're going to be a, a hired thug and you're going to, you know, do this for a living, uh, you're going to make yourself sound like this guy because, like, it's, this guy's fucking terrifying. Like, <laughs> of course, he, you know, like, I, I get that completely. Yeah, I'll, I'll throw it over here. Uh, what did you guys think of Victor Mature's performance, though? Because th- this was supposed to be sort of a vehicle for him, and this is a guy who actually has a reputation, or had a reputation, for not being the best actor, and he's a guy who even admitted that he basically did the job for the money so he could retire early, but a lot of people also cite this as his best performance ever. I personally had no issues with his performance in this. I thought he was great. And I've seen him in a couple other things where he was kind of dogging it. I thought he was fucking awesome in this. I thought he played the sort of everyday guy, cotton, like a really bad situation. I thought he did a really good job of it. Well, I'd have to agree with that 100%. That's exactly what I thought about him the whole time. It's basically a snake without its teeth. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> he just, he's up against the wall, and, he, and they, don't, they don't let him go away, get away from the wall the whole film. He's always up against the wall. And he feels helpless the whole time. That's what I got out of it. So he's just grabbing at whatever he can grab because he has no real hold on life. Like, he has no idea what the hell he's actually doing, it seems like, half the time. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I think uh, I think with Mature, I, I'm not... Uh, I mean, I, I don't think he's great. I think he's fine. <laughs> it's hard It's hard to talk about anybody's performance but, uh, you know, Tommy Udo in, in this film just because yeah. he's so good. Uh, I, I, kind of, uh, I kind of think about The Dark Knight where Heath Ledger is so good in that film, it's kind of hard to talk about anybody else's performance. Not that anybody else is bad, but they're not on that same level, and so it is It is kind of... And that was a... I mean, again, Batman, we're talking yeah. about Batman, obviously, but, uh, you know, it, it is... Uh, I, I do kind of think of it on that level. I mean, Victor Mature is... I mean, he's doing his job. He's, he's, he's acting. I, I think, if anything, he's a little bit too... Big and masculine, like he, he feels a little bit too like kind of a tough guy. Like I, I, I almost want him to be a little bit more kind of a again a Gene Hackman figure from from uh, you know Night Moves or something, or, or from, maybe like, maybe Jimmy Stewart instead. Jimmy Stewart, or like I kind of want him to be a little bit more of an ordinary guy, just kind of like doing what he has to do to survive, as opposed to you know kind of feeling like. Because he's a, a guy, you know? he's a big beefy motherfucker. Like he he yeah, looks I mean, like a mob enforcer, right? He he yeah. looks like he he looks like a tough guy. Like he yeah. looks like he, he looks like kind guy. of an, an iron jawed hero. Yeah, and, I mean that's that's what I like about him because like you know back then you know you don't screw around with certain people and you know I hate to sound stereotypical but men were men back then. I I don't know if you want to say it. So he plays that overly masculine role uh, just as a as a something to say. I don't know really yeah. how to describe that. But and the other thing is, um, I like the fact that he didn't play a whimpering, whining, crying. I'm I can't handle this kind of a role. He played the, what I most of the people that I know. He's straight faced. Okay, what do I have to do now? Okay, whatever. Okay, whatever. Yeah, screw you. And walks away. You know what I mean? And so I, I kind of like that. It's more of a realistic idea. I, the way I, I know with people in my that I in my life when they're up against the wall, they just they close down. They don't open up. If you know what I mean. I, I can go along with that, but I think that the reason that we read him like Mature's performance that way is because he isn't either isn't able or doesn't choose to give us a sense of the kind of inner, you know, complexity, the turmoil or, or whatever. And and I think like certainly from from a modern perspective, we would expect an actor in this situation to kind of give a sense of like the thought process of this guy, whereas you really don't, he's kind of a blank. You know, and and you don't really get what what's going on in his head. 
I think if if there is a a kind of a major flaw in the film, it is that you know he's 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 a little bit too much of a kind of granite jawed hero. I'd like him to be a little bit less that. I'd like to get a little bit more of the vulnerability. Did you see? Do you think though that maybe in the line of business, let's just say the poker face is the best face to wear? Well, yeah, but this guy isn't supposed to be like super tough guy. He's supposed to be a guy who's forced into this by his circumstances. You know, like I I get that. I mean, I get that he is a guy who has to put on that face, but I don't get that, like, that's who he really is, like, as a character. Especially in the, because in the sequences where he's, like, hanging out with his kids and his wife and everything, you still kind of get this kind of slightly blank, granite-jawed kind of guy. And that's when he shouldn't be that. He should be warm and, and comforting and loving. And, like, I'm really happy to have my job as a bricklayer and not have to be a tough guy anymore. And, right. I, you know... I got a little bit when he actually met his first his daughters for the first time. I got a little bit more of emotion out of it. Not much, I grant you, but a little bit more than, than, than nothing. But, I'll, uh, yeah, I'll, I actually, uh, personally, I'll agree with Paul there. I, I actually kind of liked his performance when he, you know, when he's doing his family life thing. I, I personally thought it worked pretty well. I, I bought into it. it. It wasn't the best I've ever seen of that sort of thing, of course, but, I mean, I thought he did a pretty amicable job as sort of the big, hulking, but kind-hearted father figure. I thought he kind of pulled it off fairly well. Um, and, I, and I think that actually is the sort of vulnerability that sort of comes out of his character, where he is not necessarily a bad guy. He's a guy who is pushed up against a wall, like Paul was saying. And, I mean, for me personally, I, I bought I bought into the performance for, for that. I, I, I mean, I, mean I'm, I don't think it's a terrible performance. I, I mean, I, no, I, no. maybe I'm overstating. I, I guess I'm just kind of on that, like, if we're going to, like, sit down and critique it, if we're going to, like, kind of, like, analyze it, which is kind of what, I mean, we're podcasting about it, mm. you know, if there is a weakness, that's kind of where the weakness is, and it's and it's not it's not even like, I mean, I I think it could you could view it as an acting choice, or you could view it as a kind of a, a story choice. Um, I guess for me, the film is complex enough and honest enough about this character that, to some degree, I I think I, I kind of almost look at it from more of a modern point of view and say, in 2016, I would expect a a film like this to to give us a little bit more of a hint of the man behind this. Mask, mm-hmm. as opposed to pretending the mask is the yeah. man. But um, I understand that by the standards of 1948, this is a perfectly acceptable. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, th- this is the performance he gave. I, I don't right. think that this is right. bad for for the time period. Well, I always look at it like the mask is, is the only thing I want you to see because I don't want to show you anything else. I mean, that's the way I look at it. Um, sure. Maybe th- this might have been, this might have been. Indiana Jones shooting the guy instead of a knife scene, but I think it actually works. Instead of like having a sword fight, he just shoots the guy. So this might be a little underacting on his part, but his underacting I think fits pretty well for me. Oh, I, I mean, I, like uh, I, I get him as a strong, silent type. I get him as a you know I I don't I don't let my mask show. And uh, I mean that's fine. That's a perfectly reasonable interpretation of the performance, and it's a perfectly fine at performance. Least I didn't do a Batman reference, so boom. There's right. that. There's that yeah. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll just. I'll just throw in here. Uh, I, I do want to talk about uh, his uh, relationship with Nettie here, but I just want to uh, preface this with uh, this little bit of trivia here. Uh, originally, Patricia Morrison, who who was to play uh, Victor Mature's wife in this film, 
uh, is attacked and raped by a gangster, and that's the Rizzo character that they talk about in, you know, you never see him on the film, but you talk, they talk about him. He was supposed to be watching out for her while Mature was in prison, and uh, afterwards she commits suicide, of course, and they felt like these scenes were too brutal for the film, so they basically had to cut her part entirely out of the film. So she's just mentioned in passing, basically, and it's really it focuses more on Victor Mature's romance with uh, the Nettie character played by uh, Colleen Gray, who, by the way, I think is like Paul is saying, she's fucking gorgeous as hell, and I think she does a really great job as well acting. And uh, I'll just throw it out to you too. What what did you think of the sort of the relationship between the two? Because I thought that was one of the Actually, one of the strongest parts of the film for me, I, I thought the sort of budding romance worked really well, and I liked the sort of physical performance that both of them gave when they were interacting with each other. Okay. Um, yeah, well, you know, I did I did like it. I think she has, uh, you know, as a woman maybe of the time, I, I think I know many women today, uh, why would you choose the dirt bag? Okay, <laughs> I'm like the, the the mobster. I'm like, what the hell? But I do like the endearing. You know, I liked you ever since I saw you when I was a kid and I grew up and I, you know, this and that and babysitting. I think she was a babysitter for the kids and stuff. I did, mm-hmm. I did like that. I think her overly attached girlfriend character was played very, very well. And I was jealous every time she was on screen. I was like, you dick. You know what I mean? Like so, so you know, I'm very much jealous the whole time of 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 him. So I mean. So that just shows you she did a very very good job at that at that and uh, overall I don't have too much to say but I did think it was a very interesting part of the film and half the time I was screaming for them to just get on a taxi and drive away and just never come back and don't get shot but it's, <laughs> the film is what it is so there you go I think uh, she gives a I mean she's very effective uh, as as an actress in terms of uh, kind of selling. What what really would be an easy thing to to uh, just feel completely artificial? Um, yeah. th- this relationship that we never see the beginnings of, and it's like, oh, I'm in love with you because I, you know, and and uh, you know, this idea is always like it, it it leads to some really problematic places in so many movies. Uh, but I think here it's it's pretty effectively done. I mean, I, I I buy the relationship because she buys the relationship essentially. Um, plenty of people who who go to prison. Um, you know, in the you know, have people on the outside who you know, I always loved you or I, I care about you, and, and kind of can build relationships and that sort of thing. Like I, I bought it, I bought it on a on a kind of just a thematic level and a character level that yeah, there. I mean, she kind of fell for him when she was young, and maybe that's a little bit creepy, but you know, she's an adult, she can make her own decisions. She's taking care of the kids, and she wants uh, she wants this guy in her life. You know, I I, I bought that. I think that. Uh, you know, the, the, this is this is also pure like she must be what maybe, I think she's maybe presented as about maybe twenty at the most in the she, film. She's young, yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah. I mean, if you think she's a babysitter and the kids are what, I mean, eight or nine something yeah, like and, that. Yeah, and he, might be, and, she might be pushing eighteen in the yeah, film, in, you and, know, and in film life. And he's he's presented as he's presented yeah, as twenty nine, and then he goes to jail, so he's like thirty two when he gets yeah. out of jail. So that kind of relationship definitely was not. It was actually the norm almost for yeah. for, uh, for back in the day. So it's like there's no 
there's no real plenty, plenty of subcultures. It's it's not a, it's not really unusual today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, yeah. like like a, a guy and you know a thirty year old guy and an eighteen year old girl. You know, it's it's sort of uh you know there are lots of kind of socio political reasons for that, mm-hmm. but it's it's not it's not a common. One, one of my girl one of my girlfriends was thirty eight when I was twenty. So sure. I mean, that's the way it is. Chicka chicka bow wow right there. <laughs> I bet I bet you learned a lot in that relationship. Yeah, not to date older women. <laughs> So yeah, I, I guess we can uh, I guess we can start us sort of go towards our final thoughts on this. Um, I'll jump to you first, Paul. Uh, if, if you have any sort of final thoughts you want to throw at throw at this movie, the the only thing that I thought was forced, changed, odd, or what whatnot, etc., was the ending. The ending just seemed a little haphazard, and I don't know if I mean like oh, if that was his plan. I'm like, well, you're playing shit. You know what I mean? Like that's a horrible plan. You couldn't at least put a metal plate under your Damn jacket! You're in a restaurant for God's sakes. Well, uh, Fistful of Dollars was still like you know 20 years away. So. Well, yeah, in the in the original script, he actually did die in in the original script. And that's what I was going. I was actually about to say. I was like, it seems like they changed it right on the end. And by the way, he survived. So don't mm-hmm. don't cry, kids. I mean, like, no, like they don't, you don't even get a shot of him with his kids. It's just like over the skyline, like you know the narrative. Well, I mean, yeah, you, you've, got, the, you've got you've got you've got the netty voiceover at the beginning and the end, and it's obviously piped in. It's obviously not part of the yeah. the original script, and, right? And the uh, the uh, basically the well, as far as I was concerned when I was watching the film, the netty did foreshadowing of his death. You know what I mean? And I'm like, he said he ended up with a bullet, a cop's bullet in his gut, and I'm like, that wasn't a cop's bullet. That was Yudo's bullet. What the hell? By the end, when I watched the end of the film. Um, but well, it, no, it, it no. Was... Uh, in, in the beginning, she was talking about how he got a bullet in the ass, like, running away, and uh, how his father before him, like, 20 got years ago... by a cop's gun. Yeah. Like yeah. And then it was just like him. You know, he, mm-hmm. she, she made that little line, just like him. But, uh, look, if you're going to make a guy live in the end, don't have Yudo empty his rounds... Like a maniac, he shot him a lot, didn't he? <laughs> yeah, he did. He did shoot him. He had more pricks in him than a pincushion. Yeah. So you know, I mean, that it's just like this guy completely dead, and then he pulled, you know, oh, accuracy into the cop, into the ambulance, and then it goes, you know. And I'm like, now, come I don't. Come on, is a big beefy guy. He could have took yeah. five or six shots. He's basically like Jason Voorhees. That's where Jason Voorhees <laughs> got his inspiration. He watched. Uh, he watched the Kiss yeah. of Death, and that's how I mean, he got the inspiration for that. I mean, Tommy Udo himself takes like three shots before he goes down, and he's still alive. So yeah, he's still still reaching for the gun. I'm like, you scrawny chicken bone motherfucker, you'd be dead in the right. Just those fucking gangster weapons and their shitty calibers, basically. Well, you know? they're on, they're all on, they're all on the pot, is what it's going yeah. on. They're <laughs> that's right, they're the, they're they're all on the the Mary Jane, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, but that'd be the only thing that I say is weird about the film is actually the end is a little bit uh, haphazard and. A little bit forced in, as like you could just see, you could tell how it's like. That eh, doesn't feel right, but we <laughs> everyone likes the you know the the Dorothy ended up home in Kansas kind of ending. So yeah, all right, Daniel, your sort of final thoughts on this one. Sure. Uh, one thing I didn't talk about was just the the, the kind of the, the the role of the cops, the role of DA in the film, uh, which I I think is uh, if if there's if there's the other kind of big like. I'm not even to complain about the film for 1948, but just uh, again, like I, I, I kind of mentioned in the when we were talking before we started recording, I'm like I, I really want to see a remake of this from a modern perspective, and uh, I really want to see like the role of like uh, the 
the DA is way too saintly hearted in this. Yeah, is, he is, isn't he? Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, it's it's uh, you know the, these noir pictures are, are really uh, commonly you know where there's a dude who's uh, you know, and it's always a guy. Like let's just admit it, it's always a guy, and he's uh, beset on all sides by various institutional forces, whether they be crime or law enforcement or whatever, and like he has to kind of make his own way and and figure out how to you know make his make his life better or you know kill the bad guy or whatever and uh i i really wish that the like you got a better sense of like the kind of corruption and the the kind of the evils within the law enforcement side we do get the you know his lawyer kind of says you know oh no no i'm going to get you out don't worry i'm going to be working on your parole and then like 3 years later there's no movement whatsoever. yeah well that that guy is explicitly a mob lawyer as well right right exactly yeah. and uh but but i mean, there is this kind of uh I don't know. I've, I've been paying attention to some like true crime stuff lately, and I mean, you see like all these like false confessions and the way that cops manipulate witnesses and and kind of you know make this stuff happen. And uh, uh, DAs just try to make their case happen. Like they don't they don't give a shit about the truth. I mean, their goal is to win the case, and so whatever. And uh, I think like kind of exploring the uh, the providities in the uh, legal side would be something that I really would like to see. Yeah, again, I don't blame this film for not having it, but it is kind of a weak point for me in terms of like really thinking about this film because it is very focused on kind of the the legal maneuvering. I mean, we kind of talked about Udo, and we talked. I mean, most of what people talk about in this film is the last thirty minutes, which is mm-hmm. great. That's just a whole hour that gets there, which is really all about Bianco and and his uh, you know kind of the way he's kind of navigating the legal system almost. And yeah. uh, I I wish that that had been a little bit more nuanced, but. You know, so many of these films are basically just like, well, you have to portray the cops as good guys because otherwise we don't get the funding to make it and that sort of thing. But I, I do think it's a weakness in the film. I, I do think that it, it stops the film short of like being really, really something special. Mm-hmm. I always thought it was really funny because the, the legal system, how you say about him navigating it, it's, it, I just got this mental image after watching the film of a stick being him just going down a river. It was like he's not navigating shit. He's just no. fucking. He's, <laughs> right. he's, getting, he's getting banged around and washed and this and this and this and that. And the legal system. It's it's interesting how they use him to get other things and manipulate and oh, but you're a good guy and this and this. You don't give a crap. You know well, what I mean? You're just using him it, and doing this. I, I mean, I agree with that. I, I I did use the term navigating, but he's not. I mean, he he really is a stick on a uh, on a, uh, in a in a stream. You know, arguably, I mean, what happens at the end where he. Uh, he does take control of his own destiny, and he does kind of get the happy ending. You know that that's the one point where he does kind of step outside of like what everybody else is just kind of saying that he should do. And mm-hmm. uh, you could kind of view this as kind of a self actualization through uh, you know trying to kind of take his own agency and that sort of thing in horrifyingly unrealistic ways. Like no, no person. Well, ever. they didn't they didn't write in where he went back to Sing Sing for 15 years for slugging a cop. Right, right, exactly. You know, there, there's. Um, I, I guess, I guess, I, I just kind of, I, I was really kind of like, I'd love to see like a legal drama built out of this material, you know, as opposed to to a to a noir. And and I, uh, I don't know, I, uh, I, I just, uh, that's uh, that's kind of where I landed on it. Like, I, I liked the film. It's just like it doesn't go far enough. I'll just briefly talk here. Uh, there were two remakes for this. There was a 1958 Western remake of this that I've not seen, but from what I from what I've read about it, apparently it's kind of a mix between a Western and almost a horror movie to some degree. From what I understand, it sounds like it basically takes the last third of the film 
which a lot of sort of noir pictures would do after this, take that sort of premise and make it the whole film. So, uh, like we're talking offline, Cape Fear is a good example of this, where the antagonist is threatening the family through the whole film instead of the last third of the film, like with this. So I'm actually quite quite interested in checking that out. I guess uh, you're saying it's on YouTube, so I'm... I'm yeah, I, I think the uh, the I think it's like something with the word fiend in it. I forget the exact title, but um, it is uh, it is on YouTube. Uh, last I looked, so yeah, uh, uh, the the fiend who walked the west is what yeah. it's called. Yeah, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna try to watch that for next week, and and we'll see if I actually get that watched. But um, yeah, it looked, I mean, it looked it looked like it was worth a, a kind of glance at least. So uh, I'll, I'll yeah, try to talk about it. I didn't um, get a chance to watch it this week, so. I'm going to try to watch as well. Uh, of course, the other remake is a very loose remake called Kiss of Death from 1995. Um, and this is the one that sort of stars David Caruso in his uh, first bid for Hollywood stardom outside of NYPD uh, Blue, which was a dismal fucking failure for him. Nicolas Cage and Samuel L. Jackson are also in this, as well as Helen Hunt, uh, of all people. I rewatched this Hold, this hold week. on, was this made in 1995? Is that, is that the one that actually has her tits in it? There's one with her tits in it. Uh, I don't remember if her tits are in it, but uh, they have pictures. They're great. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, David Caruso. Um, he's a good actor, but he was terrible in this. Like he he cannot carry a film. Like he just wasn't ready to carry a film at this point. And he did a couple films where he was expected to carry a film, and he just couldn't do it. This film basically sort of skims from the original plot to a certain degree. Like it's got the criminal forced by the DEA to uh, work for them, but here it's like uh, you have to go undercover, you have to integrate with the gang, and the gang is led uh, by this guy, and then like his son is Nicol- the Nicolas Cage character. The Tommy Udo character is just totally wiped out from this film, so it's more Nicolas Cage here. Ironically, of course, it's like Nicolas Cage actually steals the show here, just like Richard Widmark stole the show in the original film. And it's actually a really great Nicolas Cage performance, and he's given the worst fucking material to work with, but he makes fucking gold out of it. Like, anyone else who tried to do this fucking performance would have just fucking fallen flat on their faces. Nicolas Cage actually does a great job with this, somehow makes it work, even though this character is just totally inconsistent and totally off the fucking wall. David Caruso, he just, he doesn't sell it. Like, we were saying how Victor Mature isn't necessarily, uh, you know, uh, believable so much as, like, you know, this, this sort of tough guy kind of shit. David Caruso is not believable as a tough guy in this at all. Like, he's just kind of a pushover almost in this film to a degree where it's like, why am I even following this guy? Um, Samuel L. Jackson has this uh, part as a cop who hates David Caruso and is, has to fucking watch him and he gets shot in the face, and it's like his eye is constantly fucking, like his tear ducts are fucked up, so he's constantly fucking crying and shit. How did all these motherfucking mobsters in this motherfucking underground? Pretty much, there's too much shit going on in this film. Like, yeah, th- this sounds terrible. Like, like this, this does not sound like a good movie. You know, I just, I just, I just can't. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of just flabbergasted by the fact that you said David Caruso was a good actor. I just, I mean, I'm <laughs> like, I stopped listening at that point. I'm like, no, this is, this is not. Uh, you know, I okay, maybe, I, the, maybe I overstated a little bit. I think David Caruso is okay, depending on the on the film he's in. Okay, but he's, he's not a lead David, actor. David, David Caruso he's, is an actor. Yeah. He's he's not he's not a lead guy. Let's like he he's not he's not a lead actor in a film. He's not a lead actor on a TV show. Let's just put it that way. Sure, sure. Yeah. So okay. 
so, so stop attacking me. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, the, that film is... It could have been good. Uh, I mean, it's actually worth watching for Nicolas Cage's performance, but the film itself is... It's not great. It's kind of shit. It's but, it's a post-Tarantino crime film. Like I mean, you know, and and, it, and it's in that immediate post-Tarantino. We don't know what the fuck we're doing. Yeah. You know, sort of like that. That's kind of what it sounds like. It's it's just kind. Of, it's just a mess. You know. I'll mention some uh, quick trivia here for the film, though, um, and information. Uh, the budget for the film was one point five two million. Apparently, it broke even. Like uh, just just at home. Uh, eventually earned 1.65 million in rentals. It basically wasn't a big hit at at the time. It was you know after the fact that it earned some money. The original shooting title for this, and it's funny because they had the opening credits where they where it's the uh, screenplay and they're opening it and giving you the fucking cast and all that shit. Uh, it says like uh, shooting script or whatever. The actual title for the, for the fucking shooting script and everything was Stool Pigeon, and they changed that. Um, uh, another one was like Bad Dream or something like that. Stool, Stool Pigeon is a better title, really. I mean, Kiss of Death is just, I mean, it's so, I don't know. It feels really generic to me. Like, yeah. Like it just feels like, yeah, I mean, Stool Pigeon is like, okay, I know what movie I'm watching. You know? like, 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 Fu Manchu's Kiss of Death. And yeah, but, we could work with anything. But it probably yeah. would have been so generic back in 1947, but, uh, you know, we got so much time uh, afterwards now on everything. But um, I got I got confused with Kiss Me Deadly. I thought that was what we were uh, we were watching this week. You know, uh, so. Oh, well, there you go. Interesting piece of trivia that I just sort of uh, realized, and this was something where I, I'd actually seen a trailer for this film, and I had to look it up and see if this was actually something... The, the recent Coen Brothers film that just came out, Hail Caesar, with George Clooney, uh, I was looking at him, I was like, he looks just like fucking Victor Mature in that film. And then I did a little research, and it was like, basically the look of his character is patterned after Victor Mature, who went on to do, like, biblical epics and stuff. And and the Hail Caesar film, of course, it's, it's focused on 1950s Hollywood, the transition between the death of the big studio systems and they were doing all these epics and stuff, and the anti-communist thing was coming in and all that shit. Apparently, George Clooney, like, the character is supposed to be somewhat of a Kirk Douglas character, but his look is patterned after Victor Mature, who... Uh, Victor Mature himself did, like, a couple of these biblical epics and stuff during that decade, so that's really cool. I, I like that, because I, I was just looking at him, I was like, that's dead-on fucking Victor Mature. Like, it's George Clooney with a bit more weight on him, and it's like, okay, yeah, okay, right on, that works. Yeah. Um, also, I'll just uh, mention one more thing, the background uh, music on this, the only notable parts are the theme that starts at the beginning and, and comes out also in the end. It's called Street Scene by Alfred Newman, um, and Alfred Newman was a contract uh, composer for 20th Century Fox at the time, so his theme was actually used in several films in that period, and that's probably what we're going to go out with uh, when we end the podcast. But, uh, yeah. So that's yeah. it. Um, Are we going to do a movie god? No, we weren't going to do a movie god, unless you have something. Yeah, sure, I got one. Okay, we'll throw it at us. We can play some movie god. I'm down. Okay, yeah. let's see. I gotta remember. I gotta remember their names. <laughs> That's the problem because I thought about these two. It was uh, Carrie Fisher and you ever you ever get that Sigourney Weaver? Carrie Fisher and Sigourney Weaver. Okay, so uh, we'll just do a quick round here. So uh, we'll get both uh, Daniel and I's uh, answers. Yeah. Daniel, you go first. 
the I I you know I I killed Carrie Fisher. Uh, I'm sorry, <laughs> like that's not uh, for for me. Sigourney Weaver means way. I mean, <laughs> I mean as as much as as much as uh, you might love Star Wars, which I'm I'm kind of like iffy on Star Wars, but uh you know, uh, Star Wars is uh. You know, it would have survived with someone else in the Princess Leia role, but I think Sigourney Weaver is just like this, you know, astonishing presence in so many movies. Like mm-hmm. Carrie Fisher is is great. I I have no issues with Carrie Fisher, but Sigourney Weaver is just uh, a giant for me. Mm-hmm. So I I, I I get rid of Carrie Fisher's career and not Sigourney. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know what? I, I gotta say the same thing, but uh, I'll just put a little caveat on there. Um, Carrie Fisher definitely looks better in a bikini than Sigourney Weaver does. That's his personal preference, of course. But you know, of course, Sigourney Weaver. Uh, if if we're just gonna run it down to that base level, Sigourney Weaver definitely looked great in panties and Alien. Um, Actually, the, the hottest I thought she was was Galaxy Quest. Galaxy, yes, yeah, she was great in Galaxy Quest as well. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, Sigourney Weaver has the better uh, longevity as far as career and performances go. She didn't have the alcoholism problems that kind of ruined her career for quite a while. Um, I have the Carrie Fisher sex tape. So. Oh well, okay. Well, <laughs> there you go. Um, Carrie Fisher came back. She's done some excellent roles later mm-hmm. in her career. She was definitely decent in the new Star Wars film. I had no uh, issues with that. I thought it was. It was actually kind of emotionally touching when I was watching the film. I, I got a little bit of the feels coming in, you know, watching the, her and uh, Harrison Ford talk about how old they are and shit. That's awesome. But, yeah, Sigourney Weaver, uh, she just had a way more important career, and uh, it's definitely one I would not want to throw away. Um, I mean, I, I think she makes the first... I mean, the first two Alien movies, I, I know that. I know that you don't... You know, you're you're kind of more just the yeah, first. The first but even one. A, so, even if you discount the first one, like I mean, you know, I think that I think yeah. she is so integral to that in a way that Carrie Fisher just isn't to Star Wars, you know. And uh, you know the, that that film wouldn't exist without Sigourney Weaver. Yeah, I like, just I mean, love. Not, I just love. Not in the form, you know? I just I just love Weaver and Alien. I love her and fucking Working Girl, Death and the Maiden, all kinds of other stuff she was yeah. in between then. Ghostbusters. Ghostbusters. I mean, yeah. she. She. I mean, Sigourney Weaver is someone who had, you know, a, a good twenty-five year, really phenomenal career, and uh, you know, it's no, it's no insult to Carrie Fisher to say she just didn't have that, you know. Yeah, um, and I mean, honestly, that's that's actually a really good, that's a really good uh, pick that you gave to us, though, Paul, because when you think about it, Carrie Fisher and Sigourney Weaver both started out. As amateurs on really big movies, like mm-hmm. they both, their careers started a lot similar in a similar sort of occurrences where you know Carrie Fisher, just sort of an amateur actress on Star Wars. Now, start no one expected Star Wars to do shit at the time, mm-hmm. but it blew up, and then her career was made by the by that film. Uh, Sigourney Weaver, she was just basically picked because she was the best for the role because. They were casting uh, basically asexually for for Alien at the time. Like all the roles were written with any without any sex uh, in mind. Like they they could have easily cast a dude for her uh, role in that, and she was just the best one for yeah. it, and and she excelled in that. So um, yeah, that that was an excellent uh, that was excellent excellent uh, choices there, Paul. Yeah, no, oh, yeah, I, right. yeah, I just haven't been around for a while. 
It makes me want to go and uh, watch some Sigourney Weaver films, really. Like uh, now that now yeah. that I'm thinking about it, I'm like, yeah, I need to go like dig up some of that, some of the mid-period Sigourney Weaver I haven't watched. So thank you, Paul. I appreciate that. There you go. Give me yeah. something to do tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So uh, we'll go to Daniel. Tell us about your Doctor Who podcast. Uh, my Doctor Who podcast, you can find that at oispaceman.lipson.com. That's oispaceman, all one word, .lipson.com. Uh, we do classic and new series. I do it with my wife. It's a lot of fun. We talk a lot about like overly intellectualizing politics and stuff. And uh, a cheesy uh, TV show from the 60s, 70s, and 80s. So, uh, yay, congratulations. Go us. Uh, we just recorded for Caves of Androzani which is widely considered to be the single greatest Doctor Who story of all time. And uh, in a couple of days, uh, you can listen to that episode and see what we thought about that and whether we have controversial opinions about that, which, spoiler alert, we do. So, yay. Right on. Paul, where can people find you on the airwebs? So you can go and find me on YouTube at uh, PA Brew News for some beer reviews, Funeral Dust 666, and on Facebook at Back Mountain Arts and Crafts. Or artsy, craftsy stuff. Awesome. And, of course, you can uh, listen to the trailer at the end of this. It'll tell you where to go to find all of our stuff on uh, Podbean. Of course, we have the Facebook group now as well, which we encourage you to join and interact with us. That's probably the best, uh, single best place to interact with us and make suggestions for stuff you want us to review because we're totally open for that. And we want all your criticisms, all your compliments, everything uh, Come tell us what shitheads we are. We, we exactly. Are I mean, you want to badmouth us? Just do it. Just do it. Uh, you know, constructively. And no, uh, no, just don't. Just don't do it constructively. Just do it. Just do it. Just just run us down like fucking the pig dogs we are. Just tell uh, me what a racist I am. That's that's the key. Yeah, that's the key right. Dan Daniel's used to be calling a racist now. Oh, like, it's a thing. It's a thing this month for him. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. I'm, I'm. It's good. Don't worry. Tell me what a racist I am. It's great. That's great. You fucking racist. Okay, so we're going to... White genocide. That's my brand, you know. White genocide, yeah. White genocide. Did we switch roles here where I'm the feminist now and he's the racist? What happened? <laughs> <laughs> That's how it works, yeah. yeah. Awesome. It's, it's fucking... It's Bizarro World. Fucking Bizarro Superman's going to show up all of a sudden. All right, so we're going to be out of here. We're going to be ne back next week with a couple of Robert... Uh, well, one Robert Mitchum film and one Humphrey Bogart film. We're going to be doing the two versions of The Big Sleep, which should be a lot of fun. And until then, thank you, everyone, for listening, and thank you guys for joining me tonight, and we'll see you later. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.
Thank you for listening to They Must Be Destroyed on Site. To see the host's other stuff, as well as links to websites and podcasts of similar interest, and as well to leave comments, questions, movie requests, and other suggestions, visit us at tmbdos.podbean.com. From there, you can also find us on iTunes. You got this, man. You got this by the ass.